The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I am Brian in once again for Kelly. And here's what's coming up on The Exchange. Markets are lower again today. Investors kind of debating the path of the economy all ahead of tomorrow's big monthly jobs number. We will get a full preview. And we're going to hear from one investor who says that no matter what happens with the economy, you should always bet on growth. We'll get some names. But If the economy has you concerned about stocks, crypto's got you down, bonds are boring, maybe invest in things like high-end handbags, sneakers. We're going to take a look at that part of the market as part of our alternative investing series with Robert Frank. We're going to have hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of merchandise right on set. I'm going to steal some. You won't want to miss it. Now to a man who's always got, what do do the kids say, the freshest kicks, or does that make me just sound I got some kicks on right now. These are blue suede shoes, though, but they're nowhere near as expensive as those Air Force Ones or whatever. I'm, I'm seeing Audi 5000 distance right now. Yes, I do see the fancy Nikes that cost way more than my car at this point. But anyway, I'm sure Brian will have more on that in a moment. Uh, markets are down, as Brian points out. But let's be honest, the bulls are going to take this as a win because we had 100 plus point gains yesterday in the S&P 500 and we're down three today. So maybe not a surprise given the massive run up. The Dow Industrial is down about 207 points, down half a percent. I mentioned the S&P. The reason why it's important. I'll give you the trading ranges, as I often do here. We were up 20 points at the high and down 30 points at the lows to give you an idea of the trading range so far today. So just about flat on the session. One level to watch, though, is 4,048 for the S&P 500. That happens to be the 200-day average price of the index on a rolling basis. It's a level that some traders look at for a possible indication of sentiment in the market and trend. So watch that. The Nasdaq Composite, just about three points to the upside, flat on the session, 11,471. I'm going to show you a list of stocks, and I'll tell you what they have in common. Check this out. Travelers, Progressive, W.R. Berkeley, Everest Re, and Chubb. They're all in the S&P 500. They all happen to be insurance-related companies, and they all happen to be, at one point today, at record highs. So I get to draw five gold stars next to these names. That insurance industry has been on fire as of late. It continues today. So mixed picture intraday right now. But again, at one point today, these five insurance companies in the S&P all hit record highs in trading. And a retail roundup. A lot of that stuff still coming through in earnings right now. Designer Brands, the shoe company behind DSW, Dollar General on the value side of things, all lower because of outlook cuts or disappointing outlook. So watch those names. And then five below, it starts seeing some better trends throughout the quarter in terms of spending and consumer traffic. It started to continue to see those in the beginning of this holiday shopping quarter. So that's the reason why five below is up 14 percent. Dollar General Designer Brands down big in today's trade, Bri. I'll send things back over to you as I keep on staring at those handbags and shoes over there in the distance. You know what we should do? Take one of those million-dollar handbags, Dom. Go to five below. Fill it up with Mike and Ike's. You know, we could do that, but, but I, I don't think I can because right now they, they've all got white gloves. They're literally, I'm watching them with white gloves handling all of these things don't right give, now. Don't so. give away too much of the same. I'm not telling you what else is up there. I'm just tuned, telling you, it's man. white gloves. It, it, they, they literally are touching shoes with white gloves. <laughs> I like touch. Anyway, 
So is today's action proof that investors may have jumped the gun on the idea that Jay Powell is truly ready to take his foot off the gas or really was it the beige book that actually moved the markets yesterday? Joining us now is Kim Forrest, Chief Investment Officer at Boca Capital Partners. It was so interesting yesterday, Kim, because we were all powled out, right? I get it. And then I get all these trader notes at night that are like, yeah, it was the beige book, not Jay Powell that actually moved the markets. Either way, what's your macro take on how we're setting up heading into dare I say, 2023. I know. I, ca I can't believe we're here, but here we are. Can't believe I'm here. So I think that the Fed understands things are slowing down, that their metrics are probably a little bit overweight in uh, housing. And that's the thing I got take the takeaway from Powell's speech or the Q&A afterwards. And all of that is really comforting because if you listen to his headline, it's all about let's, you know, make sure that we get this inflation under control by raising rates. And I think that makes investors nervous, whether you're a professional investor or retail. Are they going to just kill the economy? And I think the answer is no, although it's pretty clear we're going to slow down here. But how much? And for how long? Well, I guess, the, yeah, sure. We'll probably slow down. I mean, Amazon is saying we're slowing, although I, I would say to Amazon, people are tired of buying stuff and they just want to go places and see friends and family again. I think maybe they've just shifted their spending. Either way, I guess the only question for our viewers is, has the market already predicted slash discounted some kind of slowdown for next year? And if so, by how much? It looks like that, doesn't it? Um, although today's um, PMI sort of points to uh, a, a slowdown in, you know, the areas that had been holding up, like your John Deere's and that sort of thing. So we'll see. I think it's cautious to look further ahead than 12 months. And that's essentially what we're doing now is saying, what is the next 12 months going to look like? And I care a little bit, but I care more about three to five years out. And that's where I've always been investing, although that short term tells me, should I be a, more of a seller or a buyer if the market's going up or down? Tell me about a company like a uh, NTAP, Network Appliance. Sure. Yeah, this sounds kind of weird. Um, they had a pretty good um, quarterly report this week, but they also talked down um, spending. So that kind of goes into the calculus here for the short term. But let me ask you this, Brian, are we creating more data or less data? Mm, I'd say more and we need yeah. to store it somewhere. So that's why we like NetApp and we like it for the long haul. So three to five years out, I'm looking at it going, you're probably going to be bigger and more of uh, a player than you are right now. So that's why we like them. Yeah, and it's not a name that we talk about very much, but again, it kind of goes to that, that growth in data theory as well. I saw some other things, AMD, Intel, it doesn't sound like you're in love with them, it's sort of a strong like. Yeah, I think they have, again, we're looking three to five years out, um, semiconductors, especially those that have fabs, which is the place where semis are actually built, um, they are spending money now for the foreseeable future, which is what Intel is doing. And maybe someday they will make chips for their arch rival AMD. But um, and that's kind of where I kind of like them. Plus, I do know this technology is always delivered on chips. 
and chips are going to win in the long run. So that's why I like them. That's it. Kim Forrest, Boca Capital Partners. Kim, always a pleasure to have you on. We'll see you again, I'm sure. Thank you very much. See ya. All right, by the way, be sure to check out a special edition of The Tick. It's at 3 p.m. Eastern today. On your second screen, Mr. Dominic Chu and our team of traders will show you what they're actually doing, how they're doing it. It's all about real-time trades, real-time access, real money on the line. It's real good. That is Dom Chu and The Tick, not the animated cartoon about the fake superhero, but this show. Sign up at cnbc.com slash protalks today. All right, so with Fed Chair Powell's speech behind us, the market shifts its focus to the jobs number, which could determine the pace of rate hikes. But the latest jobs data from Recruiter.com could give us some clues on tomorrow's data. Its Recruiter Sentiment Index dropped sharply in November, while hiring costs continue to soar, rising to $42 billion just to hire people year-to-date. They're also seeing a rotation in hiring, with medical and healthcare overtaking architecture and engineering, as the most in-demand jobs. Joining us now with more is Evan Sony, is the chairman and CEO of Recruiter.com. Welcome back, Evan. So we, we tried to summarize it. You can do it better than we can. What are the macro drop job trends that you're seeing now? Uh, so, Brian, thanks for having me back. Uh, always a pleasure to be here. Uh, look, we're seeing recruiters go where the jobs are. And we saw, as you, report, as you just said, healthcare. Uh, really spiked this past month. Um, a high of 22% of the recruiters rep- reported that healthcare was really their number one industry segment. Um, you know, healthcare uh, typically is less affected by recession. It's harder to recruit for because they are mostly in person related. Um, and I think the candidate sentiment for healthcare jobs are also improving. Uh, we've partnered with uh, a top resume has a top as a candidate index. And while uh, optimism is low for job seekers looking for jobs, it's the lowest it's been since they started this in April 21, the healthcare candidates are actually 13% higher. So you're seeing the candidate sentiment for healthcare jobs higher, and then the recruiters focused on those jobs as well. Okay, so somebody out there watching is thinking about changing jobs, changing careers. They've known, because they're talking to friends, you know what those friends are saying, Evan? Man, I, I changed companies. I got the same job, and I'm making 15 to 20 percent more. Is right. that slowing down, or are people still getting yeah. big jumps in pay by jumping companies? So, interestingly enough, the recruiter index reported that about 50 percent of the recruiters reported the salary stayed the same, 55 percent. But that still means that the other 45 percent reported increases in salaries. Uh, so, there is a reason uh, to leave uh, a job uh, for for more money. I think what you're also seeing is a little bit of a slow up there in terms of people leaving. And we're hearing this anecdotally and maybe because they actually already left. Uh, we're seeing uh, people left uh, two jobs, three jobs in the past year. Maybe they're going to be a little bit more reluctant. You know, when you looked at the jolt numbers, what you saw last month in September 22 over 21, uh, there were 7 percent fewer quitting and 7 percent fewer hiring September 22 over September 21. When you look at the October numbers, it was 3% less quitting than October 21, but 8% less hiring than October 21. Uh, so we're certainly seeing that discrepancy there, maybe with all the layoffs that we're seeing, and recruiters are getting laid off uh, 8% more uh, than all other job types. And that was with our partnership with uh, Revelio Labs, reported that information. Yeah, I just there was just a headline that crossed on my screen here literally moments ago that Wells Fargo is going to lay off or has laid off 
a couple hundred more people in its mortgage division. I got to imagine that that the real estate side of everything right now has got to be spectacularly weak. Yeah, so uh, we we uh, in, in our index we included some uh, included some of the, what industries are or who's next uh, really in the overall layoffs and certainly tech and software represent now in the reported numbers about twenty five percent of the layoffs but second to there uh, and quickly upcoming is really the real estate section and that's uh, leasing and real estate uh, are are quickly coming up there in terms of that net next industry for layoffs. Evan Sohn, Recruiter.com. Always great insight. Really appreciate it. And uh, the job's number tomorrow. Evan, thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. All right, you're welcome. Coming up, Beijing may be relaxing some of its zero COVID policy, but will that satisfy protesters? Longtime China watcher John Rutledge is next with his take. Plus, the head of Spain's gas grid operator is here with his view on Europe's energy crisis next year. What could be done to prevent a worse disaster this winter and beyond? We're going to find out with the CEO Enegas of Spain, next. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. The protests that have rocked China over its harsh and seem to be failing zero COVID policy may have forced the government's hand a little bit. Announcements overnight from party officials indicate the country might be moving toward relaxating, relaxing some restrictions, including looser quarantine rules, partial reopenings of markets and restaurants, and an emphasis on the lessened severity of Omicron and other variants. But haven't we kind of heard all this talk before, only to see President Xi drop an iron fist down once again? Let's bring in John Rutledge, chief investment strategist at Safanad and a CNBC contributor. I don't know. I, I, I would like to believe this is real, John. But you wonder, is this just kind of a short term, quote, gift from the Communist Party only to see them flip back to the harsh restrictions once everybody kind of, you know, calms down and goes home? Well, Brian, they're trying to manage a very difficult situation. Uh, we had uh, riots last week in somewhere between 20 and 50 different cities and almost 100 university campuses in China. So it was a it was a total mess. Now, zero COVID has been identified with Xi Jinping personally, so it's his baby. So he can't let it go. But we've already seen other officials come out and say that, well, you know, this bug is not as bad as we thought. They actually use the word pathogenicity is decreased and they started relaxing. They'll do whatever they have to do to be in control. Every meeting I've ever had with a Chinese senior official has the word stability in every paragraph of the conversation. Yeah. What are they? What do you you're very good at taking 
their language. They don't use random words. Every word they say, they're like the Federal Reserve. Every word matters. It's specifically chosen for a specific reason. You're good at interpreting that, sort of she-speak, if you will. How do you read this between the lines? Are they really softening? Uh, uh, they have to. They, they have to. You know, the, the Chinese uh, dream was to get prosperity, and they were willing to give up some freedom to do it. And uh, they're not willing to do that anymore because they're seeing the prosperity go out the window with zero COVID. You know, it's, it's very, very important to understand in Chinese history the role of the Cultural Revolution, 1966 to 1976. During that time, universities were shut and uh, people were sent to the farm, educated people, to be re-educated. Uh, Xi Jinping's including father President was sent Xi, to the farm Yes, to be including re-educated. Xi's father, who was then paraded around, humiliated. She was basically sent to a work camp and was re- reportedly repeatedly beaten, only to come back as like sort of the super communist, and that's how he rose to power. I just think we're not looking enough at his background to understand Absolutely. that this... That this is a this is a this is a guy who had an extremely uh, bizarre and probably extremely traumatizing child and young adulthood. A- absolutely, and remember, he was brought into this position by uh, Jiang Zemin, who was the former mayor of Shanghai and then later president of China. Jiang Zemin is responsible for almost all of what we now know as the opening of China. Uh, after he came in, he came in shortly after the. Uh, uh, the uh, Tiananmen Square uh, mess, appointed uh, by Deng, and uh, he really opened up China. He was responsible for all the good things that happened during Hu Jintao's term, including WTO, the Olympics, Chinese growth, uh, etc. And that stuff all went away when Xi Jinping came in. Xi Jinping has effectively divorced his Shanghai gang, the Jiang Zemin gang, and taken over as an individual. He had an anti-corruption campaign uh, run by Wang Shishan, former governor of Beijing, who basically wiped out the opposition. He's the only guy in the room at the moment. And this is very difficult for him to let go of zero COVID. So you won't see him talking about it at all on TV. You'll see the underlings talking about it. How does this play out? One year from now, John, one year from now, is China, does China look like pretty much the rest of the world, which is pretty much, you know, 95% back to normal, or are we still doing this again 12 months from now? I think we're doing it, but maybe quite as much as uh, this year. This year, 400 million people in China have been locked down. That's more than the U.S. population. And uh, in Shanghai, it was for more than two months at, uh, at one go. Uh, I don't think we see that again, but the Chinese are only vaccinated with local vaccines, no mRNA vaccines. They're under boosted and old people are under boosted. And so you're going to see more COVID outbreaks. And the question is, how uh, how willing are they to let them happen? We had a disaster in Hong Kong earlier in the year when COVID did break out, but then they vaccinated the heck out of everybody. You're going to see a vaccine campaign in China but it's still going to be using their local vaccines. So it, I, I, I'm skeptical about the result. John Rutledge, Safanat, CBC contributor. It's really just um, amazing and, and, and sad to see what's happening over there now. John, thank you. It is. Good All to right. work with you, Brian. Thank you. All right, coming up. The Senate committee hearing on FTX kicking off today, but with all the big money donations from FTX to so many members of Congress, is there really any chance of a fair and tough open hearing? Elon Moy will be along to look at that. But first, 
the final installment of our series looking at America's broken immigration system. Steve Leishman is here with some possible solutions. Next. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at t slash now. Welcome back. Time now for the third and final part of our series on America's broken legal immigration system and where to look ahead at some solutions. Steve Leisman has more. On U.S. Highway 101 in the heart of Silicon Valley and in New York City's Times Square, billboards recently beckoned workers to Canada. They harped on well-known problems in America's legal immigration system that make critical workers wait months for visas to enter the U.S., if they can get them at all. Despite growing competition for talent from abroad and pleas from U.S. businesses to help solve a critical worker shortage that is especially acute in tech and healthcare, the U.S. political system is gridlocked on immigration reform. The United States is effectively discouraging potential healthcare workers from trying to come to and work in the United States. That needs to change. What we need are system-wide reforms that incentivize and welcome immigrants into our healthcare workforce. Senator Cornyn from Texas even sponsored a bill last year to ease the visa process for healthcare workers. But he highlighted recently why illegal immigration stymies solutions on the legal side. It's hard for us to make progress on areas even where there's consensus on the topic of immigration while the border is on fire. The battle over immigration reform is hamstrung by the fight over securing borders, pathways to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, and concern that temporary visa workers invite companies to exploit foreigners and displace or underpay American workers. And yet economists and immigration experts say solving the nation's legal immigration problem can help reduce inflation, ease that worker shortage, and maintain America's technological lead. Among the fixes these experts say are desperately needed, an increase in the quotas for H-1B visas for specialized workers. The annual quota of 85,000 was set in 2004 and hasn't been changed since. A special carve-out for badly needed healthcare workers, both to enter the U.S. or, when they're already here, a relaxation or a change in licensing requirements so they can work in their trained field. A path to citizenship for foreign students who obtain advanced degrees in the U.S. so the nation can retain the talent it trains protections for U.S. and foreign workers from abuses of the visa program. Another issue with the H-1B, which I've written extensively about, is the way that the wage rules are set up, which have allowed employers to underpay many workers by tens of thousands of dollars a year. But even critics like Costa agree the quotas need to be increased. Many warn that if the U.S. doesn't find a way to bring in more of the world's best talent, other countries like Canada will. Ottawa just announced it will boost its immigrant quota by 100,000 by 2025 to half a million. Before he was famous, a young Albert Einstein applying today for an H-1B visa program would have just a one in six chance of being admitted to the U.S. He might more easily end up in Canada. Immigrants accounted for 38% of Nobel Prizes awarded to Americans since 2000 in chemistry, medicine, and physics. 45% of Fortune 500 companies founded by immigrants or their children including 20% directly founded by immigrants. So 
what we're talking about, Brian, is not necessarily Nobels and companies founded today or tomorrow, but five, ten years from now, if we don't have that flow of immigrants, we may not have that flow of invention. You know, Einstein gets all the attention, right? He's, he should, okay? Right. But somewhere, there was some U.S. immigration official yeah. back in the day right. who decided that we needed more wild-haired patent clerks in America. <laughs> and I No. No? It's interesting you're saying that because I looked into this a little bit. I'm not exactly sure what he was a he came in under. at that time. If, if, if Einstein was Einstein, he was famous, we have a way to get him in. It's an 01 visa for pretty much for famous people. Because he was already famous by this celebrity. But my point was if he was a young Albert Einstein, a patent clerk with a crazy idea in his head about E equals MC, I'm not sure what yet. Yep. One in six chance of getting in under those so, circumstances. Yeah, so he, he got in because he was famous he already. Was famous, but, yeah. but, but the pre- right. The, the younger Einstein would have been living in, like, right, Winnipeg, right. If Manitoba. A, if, if a company identified him as a, a candidate they wanted to bring to this country, you know, that's who would come in through H-1B, and that's about 500,000 business applications, 85,000 uh, awarded. That number, Brian, has not changed since 2004. And not only that, but it's the same damn lo- darn, darn dash li- lottery that... You do for medical care workers, high-tech workers, Mm -hmm. and anybody else who comes in with a specialized degree. Speaking of dams. Yeah, darns. (laughs) Dams. No, no, actual dams. Uh, Egypt's got a big one, or Ethiopia. They have this problem. I bring this up because I was in Egypt a number of years ago, and I I must have been approached by I don't know how many tens of people. Just everywhere you go and they find out you're American, they want to come here. These are people that are college-educated or close to it. They are hungry. They are smart. They and, and, and they're like, we keep applying, we keep applying we and multiply it. that by country after country. I know we got a lot of problems, but the amount of people who want to come here says we must be doing something OK. Well, here's the thing. Now, Brian, go, go get me an eagle and a hot dog. Here's what's interesting. <laughs> I actually first started. Well, I, were, I first started working on this story because the Fed and others brought it up as a re- bill reason for the shortfall in, in, in the labor markets, why wages were going up, the shortfall in immigration. I have a friend who works at a major research facility who runs a lab there. He said that recently, when it comes to Europeans, he's not getting the applications anymore. That in the last several years, there's been this change in attitude among some foreigners Mm. that because of a variety of reasons, including attitudes of Americans, gun violence. and, and, And by the way, Europeans and Canadians doing more to keep their own talent that the, 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 the supply of some of those folks at, at a certain level is not yeah. there anymore. They're not coming That's, to the States right now. That, that is or fasc- wanting to come. Well, that is fascinating. We've also probably got that. You, you mentioned in your first piece the COVID hangover from all the yes, processing right. exactly. issues. Exactly. So we'll see. But by the way, with their energy crisis gets worse the next couple of years, we'll, we might see some renewed visa. There's still, there's still we'll not a shortage of people who want to come, but it's not as, as dramatic as it was. My before. favorite dam is Hoover. But Grand Coulee is a second solid. I'm in favor of removing most dams in America. That's it, because you're a fisherman. Well, that's it. Yeah, see, I... Exactly. All right, let's get a CBC News update with Tyler Mathis. Fascinating conversation, fellows. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Russian forces continue to push hard to make gains in the east and south of Ukraine. Russian missile and artillery fire pounded the southern city of Kherson, cutting off power there and the Donetsk region in the east. 
The Pentagon is sending six advanced surface-to-air missile systems as Kyiv officials continue to ask for more and higher-tech military support. Closing arguments underway in the Trump Organization's tax fraud trial, the company accused of scheme to compensate top executives off the books and avoid tax payments. The company's former chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, testified against the Trump organization after he pleaded guilty to evading taxes. The jury set to begin deliberations Monday. And new estimates project that long COVID could cost a $9,000, not about $9,000 a year in individual medical care costs. A Harvard economist said his estimate is based on prior research into the costs associated with chronic fatigue, one of the symptoms of long COVID, by the way. Experts say costs can be even higher depending on the severity of the illness. Back to you. All right, Tyler, thank you very much. All right, still ahead, let's talk about oil. Price of oil going up again, up almost 2% right now. This is we're getting reports that the European Union may be closer to finally making a deal on an exact price cap for Russian oil, right around $60 for Brent crude. But would that even work to cut off Russia's revenue? Plus, one country in Europe may have gotten it right in their energy crisis, and that is Spain. But the real worry is for next year. So can Europe make it? CEO of Spain's Enegas is here to talk about just that next. All right, let's talk oil and gas because the next few days or weeks could be very interesting. First, OPEC Plus meets on Sunday virtually. And while no change in output is expected, don't be surprised if OPEC does make some kind of move. It's OPEC after all. Then on Monday, the widely anticipated sanctions on Russian oil kick in. These would try to prevent any Russian oil from reaching Europe. Remember, still is, some is still coming in, mostly via trading firms. And there's also the issue of a price cap on oil today. There are reports the EU may have decided, but has to vote on, a $60 a barrel Brent crude price cap. Now, that is below the official price of Brent right now, but kind of in line with the currently discounted price that Russia is already selling its oil for. But it's not just about oil. What about natural gas? Price caps? are being talked about there as well. And while European storage levels are good right now, thanks to quick action and a very lucky bout of unusually mild weather in October, the real worry is what happens next year, when nearly zero Russian gas flows to refill Europe's storage. This year, more than half the storage now was done with Russian gas, before the Nord Stream pipeline was fully cut off. But one country has seemed to fare better, and that is Spain, thanks to a combination of Smart thinking, added supplies, and a big push on renewables, Spain has come out better than pretty much any other country in Europe. But does that mean they and Europe are in the clear? Joining us now is Arturo Gonzalo. He's the CEO of Enegas, one of Spain's largest gas grid operators, LNG imports, renewables. Uh, Mr. Gonzalo, thank you very much for joining us. Um, is, and I'm going to be in Europe most of next week talking about this, is Europe's energy crisis over? Hello, Brian. Thank you very much for inviting me to share this, this conversation with you. It's, it's a pleasure. No, definitely the crisis in Europe is not over, but it's true that we are uh, initiating the, the winter season in better conditions than expected. All our underground storage facilities are full. It's true that the beginning of the winter has been very mild. And we can face with confidence this coming winter, although definitely the situation is challenging. Next winter will be especially challenging. 
And of course, we are also paying a price because of the very high cost of gas. But generally speaking, Europe has reacted very effectively to this big challenge of stopping Europe being reliant on Russian gas. And uh, we see the future with more optimism than a few few months ago. Which is good news, Mr. Gonzalo. But when I look at the math, and we've been studying this for weeks ahead of our trip, my mind is, is about ready to pop. When I look at the when I look at the numbers, uh, call it 160 billion cubic meters of Russian gas gone, even with increased imports, a bunch of American liquefied natural gas, Algerian, Azerbaijani, Norway flows. I still see a huge gap in gas demand or gas supply that I don't How is that going to be filled? Do you see the same gap? So far this year, Europe has lost something like 70 billion cubic meters of gas, 70 BCM of Russian gas. We have imported 59 additional BCM as LNG from different uh, sources, especially from the US. You know that the US is now the first supplier of LNG of Europe and also of Spain, and we we have increased our imports of pipeline gas, mainly from Norway and Algeria, to a total amount of a little bit more than 6 BCM. So we have replaced most of the Russian gas that has not been imported anymore. And we have reduced the consumption, um, substituting fuels and also uh, with uh, initiatives for saving and efficiency. Mm -hmm. So, so far we have done pretty well, although, as I said, paying a price. And it's also true that for the next year, if China starts importing as usual, because so far, because of the lockdowns of COVID zero policy, the market has been less tight than it could be when China comes back. But so far we have shown that uh, there are uh, possibilities for replacing Russian gas I think that the geopolitical message is very relevant. Europe is determined to stop being dependent on Russian gas and other uh, suppliers such as the U.S. are helping us to um, face successfully this big challenge. Yeah. And the okay, so that's good news. And Spain, I think you guys have done better than anybody else. You've got a combination of renewables growth, wind, solar. LNG, of more LNG import terminals than any country in Europe, I think you're going to be fine. You think Germany, is Germany going to be okay? Okay, Spain has, you know, we are a peninsula mainly. We are far away from the pipelines bringing us from Russia, for instance. And we have, we, we were traditionally very dependent on Algerian gas. And it came a moment in which there was a decision made to diversify our suppliers, and we built the most robust infrastructure for LNG imports and regasification. Now in Spain, we have six regasification LNG plants. That means 33% of all the regasification capacity in Europe. So this has proven very important because now we can import 
LNG from 18 different countries, and especially from the US. 29% of the gas we have imported as LNG this year has come from the US. Germany is not in such a position, but we are trying to offer our solidarity to Germany. For instance, we are reloading many smaller vessels in our regasification plants to supply that gas to other European countries, yeah. among them Germany. And Germany has moved very quick to put mm -hmm. in place five FSRUs, floating storage and regasification units. This will be operating within the next 24 months. And so Germany will be able to import LNG more. from different sources as yeah. well. So they are moving rapidly. They are not so comfortable as we are, but I'm sure they are going to come out of this challenge successfully as well. Let's hope. Arturo Gonzalo of Enegas doing their part. Uh, Arturo, and by the way, uh, good luck to Spain in about 18 minutes in the World Cup. Germany needs to win, <laughs> but they need you to win as well. So you and Germany are tied in more ways than just oil and gas. Good luck, exactly. Mr. Gonzalo. Thank you, sir. Exactly. All right. Thank you very much for All that. Right. Speaking <laughs> of this, folks, we're going to be live in Europe most of next week. Now, you got the OPEC meeting virtually on Sunday, but the EU sanctions on oil are expected to kick in on Monday. Also a possible price cap as well. So can Europe get through next year? We're going to actually do the math for you. Talk about more of what we just did and the role of U.S. LNG and the companies behind it, the Marshall Plan for energy, if you will. Also talk renewables. Should be a good time. All right, up next. It's not just Disney with a C-suite shocker. Shares of that company falling on a CEO departure. Unexpected. I'll tell you who it is coming up. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Right now, you can see we are down 236 on the Dow. Salesforce, by the way, was the mystery chart that we showed you before the break. It's the worst performer in the Dow. The company announces co-CEO Brett Taylor stepping down next month. His departure marks a second time in three years. The founder, Mark Benioff, has lost a co-CEO. Still ahead, searching for an alternative investment? Well, you are looking at hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in shoes and handbags. Robert Frank is up next with some just really cool stuff. We're back right after this. All right, if you are looking for a truly alternative investment, but one that you can actually touch, but I don't think you can actually wear, how about handbags or sneakers? Collectible handbag prices up 16% in the past year, almost doubled in the past decade, and Credit Suisse, believe it or not, says they're the least volatile asset class of any asset class. So is it time to buy Birkins instead of bonds. Joining us now is Rachel Kofsky, head of Christie's luxury department, along with our own Robert Frank. This is, I'm out of my depth here, man, <laughs> but apparently those are my size. Those how, are Michael Jordan's how 1985. Uh, they're estimated at what? Two, 200 to $300,000. $200 to $300,000. Oh, oh, they're I'll size 13 back. and 13 and a half because that's what he wore. Um, but let's talk about the handbag market a little bit. All of leather goods right now, the entire luxury space has really exploded since the pandemic, driven by a lot of young collectors around the world who are just entering this for the first time. When you talk about these handbags, whether it's the two to $5,000 or the $300,000 level, who are the buyers right now? So the buyers that we're seeing right now in the handbag category, category are very diverse. We have clients of all ages, all genders, all demographics, and they're from all around the world. In the handbag department, we've had bidders and buyers from over 50 countries participating in our sales. 
Recently, we've had more millennial buyers than ever before. In a recent auction, we had 43% of millennial buyers purchasing in the sale. And are they, and maybe this is just stereotyping, but is it mostly women in the handbag space? Is it half and half? What's the, the mix look like? We do have a majority of female buyers in the category. It's actually the only category at Christie's with this, with this majority of female buyers. And when you hear people say it's an investment, it's like, ah, give me a break. It's a handbag. You buy it at a store, it's a luxury item. What makes it an investment, and why do you think it's continued to go up in price for these bags over the past decade? We now have a decade's worth of data on these sales. Absolutely. So these are investments because they hold their value. This is a piece where if you purchase it, you take very good care of it, you store it properly, you can sell it again for as much as you purchase it for or perhaps more. And if if you choose not to sell it, you can give it to the next generation. And one of the reasons, especially with the Hermes, Birkin and Kelly, that they're so valuable is you can't just anyone can't just go to a store and buy one. If you go in and ask for a Birkin bag at an Hermes store, you probably can't get one. So is that part of what drives it? And also, tell us about this bag here. That the yeah, because I'm sorry. I, I I thought I heard you say this handbag was three hundred thousand dollars. Two to three hundred thousand. Absolutely. Think, is the estimate. Yeah. So why? People come to Christie's looking for very special and unusual, rare, limited pieces. We have tremendous rarities in all of our categories. And at Christie's, our, the handbag collectors are coming to us looking for pieces that haven't been produced. They're made in very limited quantities, and there's really nowhere else to find them. We curate our sales so that they attract attention from the top bidders all around the world. And this example that we've brought for you here today is estimated at two dollars to $300,000. It's a Himalaya Kelly 35 with 18 karat white gold and diamond hardware. It has over nine carats of diamonds um, set into the hardware in a pave setting. Uh, this is a piece that um, we've sold previously in a smaller size for the world record price at auction. Uh, that was a 25-centimeter Himalaya Kelly that was sold in Hong Kong at Christie's in November of 2021, and that achieved over 500000 U.S. dollars. Half million dollars for a bag. Now, Absolutely. lastly, the economy right now is, and stocks, we're in this very uncertain environment where you would think that sales of things like two to $300,000 handbags would slow down. People would just take a pause. Mm. What are you seeing right now? It's luxury week coming up next week in New York. You're already starting online bids for this. What does the buying, the bidding feel like right now, and where is it coming from? So we found that this year the sales have been very robust, very healthy. Uh, in H1, so the first half of the year, the last time that we've re- um, released our results, our sales were, were tracking actually higher than the previous years. Uh, last year we had 97% sell-through for H1 2021. Um, this year we've had 98%. We've introduced new sales sites in Milan and Paris and uh, Shanghai. And we've, we've actually, for the first time in the, in the history of the collection, in the history of the category, we've sold single-owner collections in the handbag category. So I would say it's very healthy. So no slowdown. Right. We have not seen a slowdown in terms of the results of our sales. Now, if, mm-hmm. okay, I, and you had white gloves, so I, yeah. I know I can't touch it. If somebody were to buy this handbag, and they will, mm-hmm. three, four hundred thousand bucks, do they use it? Or, they, or do they, how many of your buyers just store it away for the next generation or another sale versus like, walk down Park Avenue with it, because they can. That's a very good question, and we have a very diverse 
um, collector profile. Depends and on how rich you are, probably, right? <laughs> That's what I'm Well, <laughs> you're, too, if, yeah. if you're using it, you're making a statement about how rich you are. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's wearable jewelry um, because, of course, it has the 18 karat gold and, and diamond hardware. But some collectors like to keep them in their boxes, in their closets. They have temperature-controlled storage, and they, mm. they think of them as wearable works of art, which is really how, how we've elevated the category. I love it. Learned a lot, mm. including Michael Jordan and I have the same exact size feet and a half size off each. How much are these? Two to three hundred thousand dollars. Oh, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> Two hundred bid. Rachel, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Robert Frank, always fascinating stuff, and uh, glad I'm not the only one with a half size off. All right, still ahead. At yesterday's DealBook conference, Sam Bankman-Fried tried to reassure FTX's American users that the service is still in good shape. I'm deeply sorry about what happened. Um, here's, you know the long and short of what happened. And, and I'll start by saying, uh, just to, to make a distinction here, you look at the US platform, you look at the international platform. The US platform uh, is a US regulated platform with American users. To my knowledge, that's fully solvent. That's fully funded. All right, well, that would be good news for users if it's true. But to whom did Bankman Free donate to get that regulation in place? Elon Moy, I put that story next. Let's get right now to Alon Moy in D.C. with a look at the FTX Senate hearings that are about to begin. Alon. Well, Brian, now that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried is persona non grata on Capitol Hill, lawmakers are trying to distance themselves from donations they took from him during their campaigns. Seven members of that Senate committee that held today's hearing accepted campaign contributions from him, including the chairwoman of the committee, Debbie Stabenow. She got $5,800 in direct campaign contributions and $20,800 to her victory fund. The ranking Republican, John Bozeman, also got $5,800. Both of them told us that they are giving the money to charity. Now, five other committee members also got campaign contributions. The Republican, John Hoven, said he's going to return the money to whatever reimbursement fund is set up by the courts. Two of the Democratic senators, Tina Smith and Kirsten Gillibrand, said they're going to give the money away to nonprofits. Democratic Senator Cory Booker would not respond to our questions until I finally caught up with him after today's hearing. That's when he told me he's going to give the money away, too. And Democratic Senator Dick Durbin, he said members of Congress should be more careful. The cryptocurrency people are active politically, uh, and they are trying to achieve a political end here. It is their right as citizens of this country to do that, but it really calls on us to make sure that whatever we do is credible under those circumstances. Now, Brian Bankman-Fried has defended his own donations by saying they're not political. He was all about pandemic prevention. Back over to you. That's nice. Elon Moy, thank you very much. We'll look forward to more coverage. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 